Hello, everyone. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. You're listening to the Financials Edition, recorded today on Monday, February 6, 2017. My name is Gabby LaPera, and joining me on Skype is John Maxfield, our banking expert, and Jordan Wathen, our financial specialist, is joining us on the phone. Hey, guys. Hey, Gabby. Hey, how's it, how's it going, Gabby? <laughs> Uh, good. Listeners, just so you know, none of us can see each other, so we might accidentally talk over each other a little bit. But I still think it's going to be great, because this is the start of a very special theme week on Industry Focus. You may remember that one of my New Year's resolutions was to buy five stocks, one in each sector from Industry Focus. We decided to do it on air, so y'all can follow along with my trials and tribulations, and maybe learn a little bit about how to buy a stock. And so, um, this is how it's going to work. I'm going to go on all the industry focus shows this week. Uh, two people, in this case, John and Jordan, will present their favorite stocks, stocks that they would think about buying or potentially already own. I'll ask a few questions. And then next week on the financial show, about I'll talk about which stocks I've decided to buy. Um, I know that there are some listeners who hate the financial show, so I'm really sorry if you're one of them. You're probably not listening to this one, but I'm going to be on all the shows this week. Uh, so, anyway, that being said, it is time for disclaimers. I had to clear all of this with our legal team, and they'd like me to make a couple of things very clear before we start, both for transparency on our parts and to make sure everything stays up to code. So, um, listeners who have emailed me, this one will be familiar. What you hear on the show today is not personal advice for me or for you. We can't give personal advice because otherwise we'd be in big trouble with a couple of regulators, and they're scary. You'll also notice that no one is going to say anything like, you'll like this stock because I know that you, Gabby, get really bad motion sickness and this company makes the best anti-emetic on the market. (laughs) It's a little joke about my nausea. Um, The stocks that we're going to talk about are just the ones that the analysts like. Maybe they're right for you, maybe they're not. You shouldn't buy or sell based solely on what you hear on this show. Second, we have trading restrictions at The Motley Fool. I'm going to read them word for word so I don't mess them up. Um, Here we go. The Motley Fool has a disclosure policy. We must publicly disclose if a contributor has an interest in any of the stocks mentioned. Additionally, Fool employees work under trading restrictions. The restrictions require that employees must hold any stock they own for at least 10 days. We cannot write about a stock in the period of two market days before to two market days after purchasing or selling the stock, which means that I can't buy any of these stocks for at least two days until after the show, and I haven't bought any of the stocks prior to the show, which you all know because I don't own any. Um, Also, we are required to notify our compliance department anytime we buy or sell a stock. Okay, (laughs) we have that all out of the way. Starting to feel like one of those voices on those drug ads that are like, listed side effects include. so here we go. Ready? We're ready to go. Here's the deal. Each of you will get a max of five minutes to talk about your stocks. You don't have to do a whole five minutes if you don't want to. That's a long time to talk. Um, after that, we'll do a question and answer session. You're allowed to ask each other questions. Um, just say who you are before you ask the question, or say the other person's name, because I've noticed that people have a really hard time telling people's voices apart. Uh, at the very end, I want each of you to wrap up with one thing a beginning investor should keep in mind when researching and purchasing a stock. Okay, we've got all the front matter out of the way. Okay, I have a coin here. We'll flip to see who goes first. Jordan, do you want to call it? I'll call Tails. Okay. All right, it is heads, so John, you get to go first. All right, Gabby. So, let me take you through kind of my whole thought process here from soup to nuts. So, as an investor, One of the things that you always want to keep in mind is that the greatest 
tool at your disposal in terms of maximizing your returns is compounding returns. And in order for compounding returns to work, you have to give an investment time. But there are different types of investments that compound returns better than others. And banks, it just so happens, are probably the best of all types of investments when it comes to compounding returns. Now, why is that? The reason is because it gives you a really clean shot at compounding because when a bank makes money, so let's say a bank has $100 in capital or $100 million in capital, and let's say it makes $20 million a year on that capital. Well, a portion of that capital is just gonna be reinvested right back into the bank. And when it's reinvested right back into the bank, it's reinvested into loans, which then generate in interest. So you're, as you put that money back in, you're not investing it back into you know, manufacturing operations or anything like that. You're reinvesting it into another investment that is an investment in money. So it's a really clean shot at maximizing your compounding returns. And when you think about it, and you look at, say, Warren Buffett's portfolio, and Warren Buffett, right? I mean, he's the best investor probably, I mean, I, maybe ever. I don't know. I mean, like, I, I don't know if there's anybody that I've ever come across that, that has beat his returns over such a long period of time. And you look at the portfolio he's accumulated at Berkshire Hathaway, about a third of that consists of bank stocks. And that's the reason, because he talks about compounding returns and how powerful that is for investors. So that's why I think being in the banking sector is a great place for investors to be. But here's the thing. Banks are incredibly fragile institutions. And the reason they're so fragile is because two things. First, they use an enormous amount of leverage. So just as a general rule, for every $1 worth of capital, a bank will borrow about $10 worth of debt. But the second part of that is that that isn't just ordinary debt. It's not like a term loan, like a mortgage where you know you get a 30-year mortgage, the bank can't call you tomorrow and be like, look, Gabby, you have to repay that money right now. That You just have to repay that money over time and you're done with it at the end of that 30-year period. Well, banks borrow to a large extent what is called callable debt. And callable debt means that the, the people that are lending that money to the bank can call that money and require the bank to pay it at a moment's notice. And why is so much bank debt callable? Because so much bank debt consists of deposits. So let's say you have a checking account, right? Well, if a checking account isn't, all the money in a checking account, that is no more than a loan to a bank. But because you can pull that money out of your checking account at any, any particular time, that makes it callable. So why is that a problem? That is a problem because when banks get into trouble and their depositors hear about the fact that they are in trouble, they could then go and pull all of their money out of their accounts in mass. And that is what you call a bank run. And when you have a bank run, that obligates a bank to quickly sell its assets. And when you have to quickly sell your assets, you have to generally take large haircuts on them. So you have to sell them for less than they're worth. And when you sell assets for less than they're worth, you're taking a loss. And then to circle back around, because banks are so leveraged with the, you know, having $10 worth of assets for every $1 worth of capital, it doesn't take a lot of, uh, uh, it doesn't take an enormous amount of haircut on those asset sales to wipe out all of your capital and render you insolvent. And this issue about the fragility of banks is particularly important right now. 
you know, if you, if you look at what's going on in the market, there is an enormous amount of volatility going on, right? Because, you know, we, nobody knows what's going on on the policy front. And then there's, all, you know, there's always a possibility that there'll be another, you know, some sort of crisis in the, in the future. So what you have to do is you have to pick banks very carefully. And, and, and right now what you want to do is you want to be thinking in the context of both offense and defense. Because you don't want to just pick the safest bank because the safest bank isn't going to provide the best return. And you don't want to provide, you don't want to pick just the most profitable bank because the most profitable bank may not be very safe. So you want to play both offense and defense. And what I'm thinking about banks that are really good to play offense and defense with, I'm thinking about banks like U.S. Bank Corp, Wells Fargo, and J.P. Morgan Chase. But let's throw Wells Fargo out because Wells Fargo's had all those problems. They're switching up their operations. That's going to reduce their profitability going forward. So we'll throw that one out. U.S. Bank Corp is an incredibly one bank. It's a great bank stock. It's very profitable, one of the pro- most profitable big bank stocks in the market. But the problem with U.S. Bank Corp is that because it's such a good bank, its shares trade at a very high valuation. So that leaves us with J.P. Morgan Chase, which trades at a reasonable valuation, is uh, very respectably profitable, and will continue to be more and more profitable as time goes on and interest rates goes up. But at the same time, it's incredibly well managed. Jamie Dimon, its CEO, is one of this generation's, if not this generation's, greatest bankers. And there's a number of reasons that we could talk about that. But he is very well attuned to risk in the bank industry. So with a, with a stock like J.P. Morgan Chase, not only does it give you that upside, but it also gives you protection from the downside. So to kind of wrap this all up in a nice little package, you know, if you want to you know, invest, you want to look for opportunities to maximize compounding returns. Banks are a great way to do that, but you want to pick them carefully. You want to pick ones right now that you can play both offense and defense. And I think J.P. Morgan Chase is the one. Okay, thank you very much, John. We turn to you, Jordan. Okay, so that was an awesome pitch, John. Uh, so the stock I wanted to pitch is Moody's, and what makes Moody's interesting to me is that I truly believe it has one of the most impressive moats around the business, and it would be very hard to knock off what they've done. So Buffett actually once said that even though he owned the stock at the time, he said, I don't even know where they're located. I just know that the business model is extraordinary. So what Moody's does is there's actually two businesses inside it. There's the ratings business, and then which basically provides corporate debt ratings. And then there's Moody's Analytics, which is a software platform. And the ratings business is its bread and butter. It generates about 80% of operating income. And I think it's what makes the business model so great. So when you look at the ratings industry, there's really only three major players, right? There's S&P, Standard & Poor's, there's Moody's, and then there's Fitch. And of those, S&P and Moody's control about 80% of this market. The reason why they control so much of it is because back in the day, 40 years ago in 1975, the SEC created what was called a designation called the Nationally Recognized Statistical Rating Organization. <clears throat> and what this did was it said, these are the ratings agencies that we trust. And it really only gave this uh, designation to about six companies. And over time, they merged together to form the big three that we have today. So in 2007, the SEC actually opened this market back up and they said, we'll take new applications. And a bunch of companies applied. And now today, there are about 10 companies that provide ratings that are basically accepted by the regulatory regime, right? Mm -hmm. And so one of the reasons it's so hard to break into this business is that even though there's 10 companies now, you still have three that control the main part of it. And the reason why it's so hard to break in is mostly because habit. So if you have always, let's say that you own a 
your Walmart, for instance, and you've always issued debt that was rated by S&P, if you go out and issue a new security and get it rated by Moody's, people are going to wonder why you're shopping around for a better rating, right? Why, why did you change the company that was rating your uh, debt securities? On the investor side, people understand what a rating means. So <clears throat> when I open up an insurance company's books, I can look at it and see, oh, they've invested in AA paper or B paper. And I know what kind of risks come with that. So even though that you can, you can criticize basically the ratings agencies for how they perform during the housing crisis, we know that over time, a double A performs better than an A, which performs better than a double B. So if I open the books on an insurance company and I see that it is heavily invested in securities that the big three have rated investment grade, then I know that on average, the risks are quite low. If, however, I open up the books and I see that the insurance company invested in bonds that were rated by Uncle Bob's rating agency, I'm probably not too excited about what I found, right? It's not really worth it for a company to invest in securities or issue securities that uh, have a lower quality stamp on them, so to speak. And then finally, I think, I think one of the big issues, especially today, is that the bond indices really rely on these ratings. So S&P, Moody's, Fitch, they are basically the basis for which uh, index a bond issue falls into. So, and it really doesn't matter who it is. So if it's a Bloomberg index or Barclays index, if it's a junk index or an investment grade index, basically they all say, this is the reason why the bond will go in and it's an investment grade or junk rating or whatever from S&P, Moody's or Fitch. There's really just three players, right? So let's get to how Moody's makes money and how just generally the ratings business works. So if you want to issue debt, you have to pay the credit rating agencies to issue it. So I used Walmart as an example earlier, and I'll just continue with that. So let's say that Walmart wants to issue a bond just to finance whatever. It wants to finance inventory or whatever. So obviously, the ratings agencies collect a fee from Walmart to do it. Now, the reason why you pay for a ratings agency to rate your debt as a company is the amount that you pay to, for the rating will save will save you much more when you get the rating. So in general... An investment grade rated company might pay five or six basis points in a fee to get the rating on a bond, right? But it will save them over time about 30 basis points in interest every single year for as long as that bond exists. So in effect, what the ratings agencies are, are just a toll road to bond issuance. If you want to issue a bond, you have to pay basically the trolls that sit on the road to collect the fee. So that's why I think that Moody's is probably one of the greatest businesses out there. And at 20 times earnings, roughly, I think it, it's, it's starting to become at least a, a potentially very good investment for the long haul. Okay. Thank you very much, Jordan and John. Um, so, I have a couple of questions for uh, both of you, but I'm going to start with John, I think. Um, so, JP Morgan Chase is a bank. What kind of bank is it? Because there's a lot of different types of banks, right? That's a great question. So JP Morgan Chase is what's called a universal bank. And what a universal bank is, it's a combination of a commercial banking operation, which is just your, your, your standard bank. Your, they make loans, they take deposits. And then on the other side of their operation is an investment bank. And investment banks, these operate Wall Street operations. They take companies public, they have trading operations where they're buying and selling securities for institutional clients. They're advising companies on mergers and acquisitions and things like that. So the, the reason it's such a good question, actually, Gabby, that you asked that is because universal banks, 
they they have a a a a different set of risks that they expose investors to, and those risks primarily come through trading operations, because you know you can we learned with J P Morgan Chase in particular, I think it was in two thousand and fourteen, they had a, something like a six billion dollar trading loss, and these things can materialize very quickly. But the Dodd-Frank Act put in this thing called the Volcker Rule. What the Volcker Rule does is it limits how much proprietary trading a large bank can do, and it limits it to what's called market making. So as opposed to going out and just making proprietary bets with your own capital, what it limits you to is just basically facilitating the, the purchase and sale of fixed income securities and other types of securities for institutional investors. So that really reduces that, that, that trading risk. But the benefit of a universal bank like JP Morgan Chase is that because it has both commercial banking operations and investment banking operations and because those operations operate on slightly different schedules or slightly different cycles it kind of gives you a natural hedge for when the market is going up and down because some investment banking operations will do really well when unemployment goes or you know or you know when 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 the business cycle goes down uh, whereas commercial banking operations might might not do might not do as well in that, that time period. So it kind of flattens out your return over a long period of time. Okay. Um, I do have another question for you. What are some things, so you mentioned some of the risks that are involved with, with investing in a bank like J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, one of my big things with banks is being able to look at their 10Qs or 10Ks and being able to understand what's going on. Um, J.P. Morgan Chase is generally not a Bank where that's easy. What are some of the things that that you look for that are signaling to you that they're doing well and will do well in the future? There are two. Let me. There are three main things that I think you should look at. Let me give you a shortcut though before getting into those. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Actually, let me just give you a shortcut on on picking bank stocks. All right. Like, as opposed to getting into the details because. JP Morgan Chase, if you look at their 10K, it's something like 250 pages. Yeah. And it is really complicated. I think that's what you're getting at, right? Yeah. And and it's even I've I have lived in the banking world now for almost six years, and that's all I do, and that's all I think about. And even for somebody like me, this is a very complicated thing. Okay. So one of the shortcuts you can take is just go and look at the 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 portfolio of bank stocks that Warren Buffett has accumulated. He has basically done the research on these. Now, you're, now if you go and you look at that portfolio, you're actually not gonna see J.P. Morgan Chase. And you're gonna be like, well, that doesn't make any sense, John. But, the, but the, there's, there's kind of, there's, uh, there are some other backstories behind this. First of all, while Berkshire doesn't own J.P. Morgan Chase, Warren Buffett himself does. And Warren Buffett, I mean, he holds Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, in incredibly high regard. And on top of this, even though Berkshire Hathaway's second largest holding in that portfolio and probably and one of its most profitable over the last couple decades is Wells Fargo, he doesn't have a representation on that board, but one of Diamond's chief lieutenants just joined the board of J.P. Morgan Chase. And you can rest assured that that was done with Warren Buffett's approval, and that signifies, and they would not do that, he would not allow that to happen if he did not believe that number one, Jamie Dimon was an incredible CEO, and number two, that J.P. Morgan Chase was an incredible bank. Fair enough. Um, that's that's really funny <laughs> about Warren Buffett and J.P. Morgan. Um, okay, so Jordan Moody's, um, not not a company that I actually thought you were going to pick. So I was I was interested to to hear that you had had gone for Moody's. 
what are what are some of the growth prospects for Moody's? Like, what what could we expect to see from them in the future? So I, that's a that's an interesting question. Um, especially now, I personally think that's one of the reasons why um, you know the valuation is you know almost in line with the average company. It's just because a lot of people are afraid that rising interest rates will lead to an environment where companies just aren't issuing as much debt. Like it's not as attractive to issue. And maybe some of the junk companies of today, the junk rated companies, won't be so willing, not just to pay higher rates in the future, but there won't be such a, you know, just such an appetite for yield. And actually, one of the reasons I like it is because I'm glad people are kind of afraid of that. I think actually over time, what you'll see is that banks play less of a role in financing companies and that what happens is more money comes from the capital market. So more money comes from the bond market and bond fund managers and things of that sort, which would be very good for Moody's over time. So I actually think one of the biggest growth prospects is that what you have is the, the bank sticking to more of their plain vanilla bread and butter loan, and then the market's picking up everything else. Interesting. And a question kind of generally for both of you, um, we've seen so far in the last two weeks or so, that um, deregulation has kind of been the name of the game for the Trump administration. And John and I will eventually do a show on that. (laughs) Get excited. John's just hearing about this now, but I'm sure he anticipated it. So, what what do you think, how do you think that that is going to play for both of these companies? And uh, John, do you want to go first? Sure. So, as a general rule, Deregulation will be good for J.P. Morgan Chase and most other banks. The extent to which it will be good will depend on the, the extent to which they deregulate. And we just do not know at this point whether the regulations they have in mind are and are going to be able to get through Congress are just going to be minor variations on a theme or a wholesale repudiation of Dodd-Frank. And if you look at what bank stocks have done since the presidential election in November, one would be excused for concluding that the market believes it will be a wholesale repudiation as opposed to a minor variation on a theme. So the risk there is that it will in fact be a minor variation on the theme and the multiples will have to adjust. But even if that is the case, J.P. Morgan Chase is still trading for a reasonable valuation. J.P. Morgan Chase is still an incredibly good bank to own. And if you own it over 30 years, I'm telling you, you look back in 30 years from now and you will you will thank yourself for making that decision. Okay, I have a quick follow-up for John. Um, so, it has been the case in the past that when deregulation occurs, banks end up doing something slightly riskier because you tend to be coming off of a period of like economic stability. So, has does JP Morgan Chase have that record of of being a smart conservative underwriter to to back up any potential headiness from deregulation giddiness you, i suppose <laughs> so if you look back 100 years in the banking industry okay mm-hmm. and you look at what happened in the great depression which is when a large swath of our nation's banks failed they put in new regulations however even had they not put in new regulations, there was a period after that, a multi-decade period after the Great Depression that they call in the banking industry the Great Moderation. And what the Great Moder- what happened during the Great Moderation was that all of these CEOs of these banks who lived through the Great Depression were just terrified 
of the possibility of taking on too much risk. So what they did in that scenario was they elevated the risk managers above their revenue generators. And it is my belief that even if there's deregulation, if they tailor, if they kind of tailor back on the Dodd-Frank Act, the risk managers in these banks still have an enormous, still have an enormous amount of power relative to the to the revenue generators. So I do not believe that over the next generation, so and you know nobody can predict the future. Okay, but it is my reading on on the history of banking that we have a good generation, you know, 10, 20, 30 years maybe even, where the the CEOs of these banks will remember the financial crisis and act accordingly. So when you think about JP Morgan Chase in particular, and I'll be really quick on this, if you look at all of the banks in the United States that survived the financial crisis, there is no bank that foresaw the financial crisis as early as JP Morgan Chase did. And the reason they foresaw it so early is because Jamie Dimon, I know I'm like saying his name a gazillion times, but Jamie Dimon is such a good risk manager and has his finger on the pulse of how the credit cycle works. And I believe that even when he retires, whoever he had, who, whoever his successor is will be trained by him and will adopt those same characteristics. Oh, okay. So, Jordan, your turn. Deregulation, Moody's, what do you think? Uh, I can actually be pretty quick with this one. Uh, with Moody's, one of its most profitable segments is structured products, which are all the, you know, fancy three-letter words that, you know, blew up and probably, you know, concern a lot of people today. Um, that's where it makes some of its thickest margins. So to the extent that rules are relaxed in that area, that'd be a huge win for Moody's, especially over time. Um, I think that actually deregulation would actually work in its favor. So, I mean, to to the same, basically the same degree, I'm just saying with John, that I think deregulation in general is probably good for financial companies as a whole. Cool. Um, do you guys have any questions for each other? Jordan, why are you so awesome? <laughs> Oh my gosh. This so when we were planning the show, it was like listening to Canadian parliamentarians talk to each other. They're like, Well, the fine gentleman from Alberta has a great point. And the other one is like, Well, thank you very much, kind sir from Victoria. Um, the whole the whole thing. I was like, You're not gonna give the, the listeners the bloodlust that they want. That's fine. I'd rather you guys get along with each other. <laughs> um, Jordan, any questions for John? Uh no, I just have to say, John makes this whole thing look easy, so I appreciate the question from him. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, in that case... Wait, Gabby, can I, let me just bring up one point, because just to kind of close out this. You, you had said that you, know, kind of, you wanted us to talk about our advice to, to beginning investors, one piece of advice, and, and let, me, let me give my just really quick short piece of advice. The way you win in investing is you leverage time. If you're trying to trade in and out of the market because you think you have some advantage doing that, you're, you're, you're going to be sorely, you're going to find out that you're sorely mistaken because hedge funds have so much data and so much information that they are going to win on the trading. But hedge funds have to return, have to generate returns on a yearly basis, whereas you as the individual investor do not have to do that. You can take advantage of compounding returns over 10, 20, 30 years, and that is real, where the real money is at. So focus on picking good companies that are going to last a long time and you're going to do really well over a long period as an investor. Awesome. And what about you, Jordan? One piece of advice for beginning investors. I'm actually going to follow up on that. I think that's, that's probably the best advice ever is that the investing, the key to it is that it takes time. If, if, if you go back to 2010 
and you were someone who thought that you should buy bank stocks because interest rates were going to go up like everyone else did. You were wrong for six years, right? Six years running. <laughs> and then 2016 rates go up and suddenly that thesis plays out and actually bank stocks outperformed pretty much every other sector over that period. So for five years, you look stupid to look like a genius, you know, in the sixth year. So one of those things is that I just completely agree with John. The most important thing you can do as an individual investor is to just be able to buy a stock and ignore it and just hang on to it. And I think everyone does better just by holding a little bit longer. Thank you, both of you. Um, that was a very enlightening and substantial discussion. You guys will hear my decision next week. Uh, Austin, J.P. Morgan Chase or Moody's? I am not totally sure. They both sound pretty solid. <laughs> good luck on deciding. Thank you very much. It sounds like you guys did a very good job of convincing us of both. <laughs> Contact us at industryfocus at fool.com or by tweeting us at mfindustryfocus. Again, if you're thinking, oh, sorry, just kidding. We don't have an internship anymore. We still do, but the internship is closed. Everyone who applied, I don't know if you can hear that, but I applaud you. I'm very excited to meeting one of you. Uh, thank you, Austin, for producing today's show, and thank you to y'all for joining us. Everyone have a great week, and I'll see you tomorrow.